Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. The name and spirit of today's episode is inspired by a special initiative at Columbia University that is taking place today, February 9th, 2020. She Opened the Door began with a historic conference in New York City in 2018. The conference takes place on campus and aims to enlighten, educate, elevate, and to empower Columbia women across the university. This could not be a more perfect backdrop for our interview with Susan Fagan. The woman, the myth, the legend, is one of the first female Ivy League VPs, an extraordinary leader in the field, and more personally, my father's mentor. She is the 2014 recipient of the E. Berg Gibson Lifetime Achievement Award of the prestigious Case Distinguished Service Awards. Susan brings decades of fundraising and campaign experience to the John Brown Limited Firm, where she serves as president. Her experience has included leadership roles at Columbia University, Harvard University, and the University of Michigan. Susan received a Bachelor of Arts degree cum laude from Columbia University's School of General Studies, where she currently serves as a member of the school's Board of Visitors. More importantly than anything that she could add to her CV is the fact that Susan has opened the door for all of us in the hundreds of ways she has led our field. We talk about her experience consulting and then more broadly her opinions on metrics and how they have shaped and will continue to inform the way our field evolves. Hi Susan, thanks for joining us today. Catherine, thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. Can you tell us the backstory on John Brown Limited? You bet, I'm happy to. So, um, John Brown Limited was created, uh, not surprisingly, by John Brown, <laughs> who was the guy who really created plan giving at Harvard back in the mid to late 1970s. And so he had a very successful run with working with clients in all sectors of the nonprofit world. When he died in 2011, I picked up the firm and have been doing all of my consulting under the John Brown umbrella. And at that point, we had been married for 20 years. I had um, stepped down as uh, EVP at Columbia and had planned to do more consulting in any case. So taking it over was, was daunting. <laughs> how, do yeah. I, how do we live up to sort of that incredible leadership and example he had set? Good. Well, so I wanted to take the first section of this conversation to talk about your consulting work, and then we will shift on to another topic. When you work with institutions, how do you help them find their voice? I think that's an interesting question because I think in a way, even offices of development and alumni may have multiple voices. And so part of it is figuring out where those voices are and are they aligned and is that part of what they're struggling to deal with, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, when they come to me, my first question always is, what is it that you think I can do for you? Because sometimes prospective clients have unrealistic expectations about what fundraising consultants can do. They think you're magical. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I find often is what they are looking for is what I think you're referring to when you say their voice. So it's the messaging, starting both with their own sense of their mission but also of the institution and what the institution's trying to accomplish at that point in time. 
Yeah. Well, in the last few years, and specifically in this past year, we've seen a lot in the news around reputational issues in our field. How often has that been coming up with your current clients and you know people that you're talking to in the field? It is coming up with every single one of my clients. In my 40 plus years in this field, I have never seen anything quite like this because we have the reputational issues coming in several different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's Varsity Blues and there have been some Me Too issues, obviously. And now we're reading about some international issues that are coming to the fore. Every institution that I'm working with has taken the opportunity to step back and relook at all of their policies related to, you know, vetting potential donors, understanding situations around admissions and where that, we are, we've known for a long time that that can be fraught. And so we've all become careful about that. But we're seeing that it's even more complicated. And I'm seeing some new kinds of situations that 15 years ago we just wouldn't have imagined. And so it puts us in a position where we have to be cautious about new potential donors, which in some ways to me is just heartbreaking, you know, that we have to worry about that so much. But we do. And I think we have to all be careful, not only that we are doing the right thing, but that we appear to be doing the right thing. And is that the advice that you're giving your clients right now? Yes, I do worry that we're in some cases overreacting. Hopefully that will balance over the next couple of years when we get a better handle over being smart about this. I mean, I always feel making policy in the wake of some extreme situations leads to very bad policy. So I, I worry that we can, that we may be in some cases overreacting, but I'm finding talking to vice presidents, presidents, um, trustees, everybody's trying to find kind of a rational approach to this that recognizes philanthropy is a wonderful and essential part of private higher education and now most public higher education. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find a way to recognize and appreciate our donors and at the same time be smart and thoughtful, you know, about these potential issues that could come up, conflict of interest or serious reputational issues. It's a tough one. What I will also say for the vice presidents, they're all saying to me, it's taking a lot of my time. And so at our day-to-day level, it's a big distraction, maybe a necessary one, but a big distraction. And do you think the implications will go beyond the dollars? I guess you're saying it's taking more time, um, but what will the other implications be? I think it, it's conceivable if we get too rule-bound about who we can accept gifts from. I could see a time when the work becomes less human and maybe more rigid. That would be a shame. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I had a question sent in from a listener who is thinking about transitioning to consulting. And I wondered what you would tell our listeners about making that transition and what you would advise. Absolutely. Um, I just had a conversation with someone last week who is sort of in my situation who's thinking that consulting may be a nice transition to retirement. 
that's very different than someone who might come to me and say, and I don't know about your listener, saying, I want to make a living consulting, right? I want to I want to make as much money or more consulting as I am right now in my institutional role. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of what I know, I also owe to having watched John Brown develop his business over so many years. And if you want to develop your own consulting business and have it be a way of earning your own living, Um, There are two ways to do it. One is you have to become a fantastic marketer of yourself. So that's what I watched John do. He developed his own business. There were never too many clients. You know, he was always looking for the next client because you never knew when you might lose one. Um, And I saw that sort of relentless... you know, you always had to be thinking about... It's like working a portfolio. Exactly, <laughs> right? up the gifts. If this person says no, who's the next uh, potential donor, right, yep. that, I can, that I can put in there? Mm-hmm. And so that's one model. Uh, John was very successful at it. I mean, the other model is to connect with a bigger consulting company, be recruited and accepted as one of their, you know, very active full-time consultants. In that situation, you don't have to do as much of the marketing yourself, so that's an advantage. The disadvantage is you have less influence over who your clients are going to be. So it's a trade-off. And I think often people come to me and they've already leapt ahead to having a set of interesting clients and haven't thought about all the steps that they're going to have to take from here to there whether it's on their own or with a consulting company. Um, So I think it can be very gratifying, but like all pursuits, like a full-time development job, you know, it has its pros and cons. So it's not like some fantasy land, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, you make it look so good. (laughs) So, and it helped. I mean, for me, it's wonderful because I'm transitioning to retirement. So that's in many ways the best of all possible worlds. Well, so speaking of, you know, Columbia, Harvard, two places that you worked for a great deal of time, how do you look back on your career that you spent in higher education? What would you have done differently if you could do it again? What do you wish that you had done? I don't know how often you think about this, but it would be so interesting to hear. So another good question. I've joked at some case presentations recently, I really do feel like um, one of the sort of dinosaurs in the field because of how long. Um, My first job in development was in 1974. You're an OG. (laughs) (laughs) So I was Columbia's first full-time person in prospect research. So that's how far back I go, and it was a relatively small office. So when I think about my career, I think of how I've watched the field grow and change and mature um, in some good ways and maybe not such good ways in others over that period of time Mm -hmm. was really sort of uh, the way my personal life was working for a while that I got to go back and forth between Columbia and Harvard a couple of times. And there is definitely a truth that it's easier to move up when you're moving from one place to another than it is to move up when you're staying in the same institution. And you when hate I started to say out, it, you had to but say, it's, but it's true. true. And I was, you know, I was a young woman at a time when there were not women in senior positions mm-hmm. in development yet. Um, in the Ivies, obviously, I've watched that change. 
And I think the big move for me was when I, in 1998, when I decided to take a look at the position of Vice President for Development at the University of Michigan. That was sort of, everybody thought that was sort of my aberrant behavior, you know, that I was leaving the Ivies and heading out to Ann Arbor. Um, But for me, it was an opportunity to move into a vice president spot. And I wasn't sure at that point when and if that would ever happen at Harvard or Columbia. I ended up back at Columbia because the president I went to work for became the Columbia president. I'm happy that I made that move. That because I lo- I loved what I was doing at Harvard at the time. I had a wonderful job, um, but I what knew- was your job at the time. So I was the number two in the university. I was the director of university development. I had been running all of the fundraising for Harvard College and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and that part of the campaign was over goals. You know, I felt like I had done sort of what I set out to do. So I'm proud of. Uh, the fact that I decided to take what looked like kind of an interesting step, um, you know, moving into a public university and uh, move into that leadership position. I learned a lot that I was able then to bring back to my work when I came back to Columbia in 2002. Mm. So there's so some... you would have done that again if you could have. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there is some very interesting forward-looking fundraising work being done in a number of our prestigious public universities. Mm. So we have a lot to learn um, also by seeing what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing some of your personal experiences working in higher ed and in consulting. Now let's have a broader conversation about how metrics impact fundraisers in the field and how that directly impacts us getting to the work. When I was coming up in university fundraising, we had very strong philosophical underpinnings Um, For example, fundraisers don't set priorities. Academic leaders set priorities. We help fund them. And one of the other strong underpinnings was that we're given this responsibility, opportunity to develop and nurture and sustain these personal relationships um, between our institution and our donors, our alumni donors, parents, friends, corporations, and foundations. We're told, don't screw that up. These are long-standing relationships. We're in the long game here. So be very careful about that. And then in that same breath, I'm not even sure there's a comma in that compound sentence. We turn and say, oh, by the way, um, here are your metrics, and you have to have this many visits and this many proposals at $250,000 or more, <laughs> and we're going to look at how much money you've raised, and you know, because that's how we're going to hold you accountable, and that's how we're going to show how super professional and organized we really are. And I, just fi- I find those two things potentially very much in conflict. I've thought, about, I've thought about this issue a lot. What I realized about 20 years ago is that metrics had come on the scene and they were not going to leave. Why do you think they came on? Was it to encourage non-productive fundraisers to produce? Or was it just to create numbers for us to show for ourselves? So I don't think it was for non-productive fundraisers to produce. And I don't mean this disparagingly, but I think a group of people came along in our field who said, okay, uh, fundraising is becoming increasingly professionalized. 
Um, the money that we're raising is becoming increasingly important to our institution's bottom lines. Mm-hmm. Um, we're building it in, for better or worse, to everybody's plan. The planners are assuming we're going to raise this many current dollars and this many new en- endowment dollars this year. So we have, to ha- we have to have a way of doing that and having some control over how we're doing that. And I think metrics came along as a way of um, showing our budget people and our boards and others um, that we that we were using their money wisely, that we were holding people accountable, which I think is a very important thing. But what I've seen happen over time is metrics often drive behavior in a in a direction that doesn't help you meet your long-term goals. Plus, as I've mentioned before, it puts fundraisers in this bind of Okay, so I can get the $250,000 gift today, or maybe if we really engage the person more, it could be a million dollars next year, but I don't even know if I'm going to be here next year, and I need that proposal on my list of proposals. So I think we can, we can really drive behavior unproductively for everybody. My other theory is that metrics also came in when we quit doing hands-on fundraising management. So I was at Harvard, uh, the director of major gifts for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. I sat with every single fundraiser and went through their portfolio with them and met with them regularly. And I knew what each person was doing. I knew if they were moving their prospects along. I knew if their prospects were making gifts. Um, And we did have a tracking system where we could look at their assignments and see what had come out of that. But at that moment, it wasn't so directly metric related. And I would argue if you're really working with your fundraisers, you know who's doing a good job and who's not. And so you don't have to have the metrics. Really good fundraisers, they resent the metrics, but they usually hit them without even thinking about it because they're hungry for the next gift, they're proactive, they're good fundraisers. The one reason I like metrics is because they help really smart, good people who are in a fundraising job understand they are not fundraisers. So if you go, if you go for a couple of quarters and you don't, you're way below on visits and you're way below on proposals and you don't, you know, it's an opportunity to have the conversations that says, gee, I think you're a terrific person, but you just may be a bad match for fundraising. This just may not be a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. That's the only way over time that I've really loved the metrics. Yeah, yeah. and that's kind of a, it's a natural check-in point, and it's a way for the manager to have a conversation that's pretty black and white, right? It's, it's numbers. Right. But most of the time, it's not black and white. So most of the time, it's gray. So here's, here's a good example. Here was a set of metrics. It was for one of the schools I went to, and the major gift officer said, well, and I was a donor, okay, I can't, you know, if I come and see you again, I don't get credit for the second visit because I only get credit for the first visits because our goal is to find more prospects. Wait, they said that to the wrong person. And I'm like, (laughs) you've got to be kidding me. And that, and I went back and the whole goal was, well, we don't have enough prospects. 
So there could be no second or third visits to work toward a gift. So you see, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, I can see the expression on your face. You're going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) This was not that long ago. I mean, here's a great example. And the fundraisers, they, you know, I want to keep my job. Yeah. So I, good luck and give again, but I'm not going to, you know, if I come see you, it doesn't even count. Yeah. So... So let's go back to what you were saying about when you were in your role at Harvard and having those conversations. How often were those conversations taking place? Tell us more detail around that. Yeah. So um, at least every other week. Okay. And I see lots of times now where someone will say, well, I meet with my fundraisers once a month or whatever. I'm kind of like, okay, not enough. Mm -hmm. And it would always be with the whole portfolio, but then on top, a list of these are the 20 that I'm really working actively on now. So that is something that I actually, it was a recommendation from my dad where I just made an Excel sheet on my computer and put in my top 20. And now since I have a regional role, they're all in different places. So it's a little bit disorganized in that way. I mean, everyone says, you know, top 20 is important. But regularly looking at that list and, you know, when I sit down with my boss in one-on-ones and going down that list, I think we've lost that, I guess, another form of a metric, right? Or as something that we all do regularly, just how we brush and floss. Why has that been lost? I would argue one of the reasons it's been lost is because we've replaced it with the benchmarks and metrics. Uh, Okay. Okay. So that's when I talk about fundraising management now I think in some places managers just look at that data for their fundraisers like how many visits have you had how many proposals have you put in and if then I as the consultant said to the fundraising manager well tell me something about those proposals that your staff has put in I'm not sure how much they'd even know about them and they might even just be projections too and could be yeah right Um, So if you could wave a magic wand, to use one of Craig's terms, and change it, what would the ideal metrics be? So I think we'd probably still look at some of the same things, but they wouldn't have the kind of heavy weight. So like if we were giving you a fundraising grade, the metrics would only be part of it, right? Right. (laughs) That... Because I'm an active, hands-on fundraising manager, I'm going to be able to add to the metrics. I mean, it could be that last quarter you were working on two seven-figure gifts and it affected your visit numbers because those gifts were really pretty labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. We have to take that into consideration mm-hmm. looking at the numbers. So I will say the smartest metrics I've seen, um, two different places I've known, where each fundraiser has a different set of goals based on the quality and maturity of their portfolio mm, and how good. long they've been at the institution. It's a process between the fundraiser and the fundraising manager where both of them kind of come together and say, okay, yeah, I think these are reasonable goals for me this year. And the ones obviously doing customized much more labor-intensive, and there's always the, well, you know, we have to be fair. Um, But from my perspective, being customized is more fair to expect more of the more seasoned fundraisers who have higher quality Uh, portfolio. Mm -hmm. They should be raising a lot more money than the, you know, newbie in his second year who has a, you know, so-so portfolio. 
Yeah. Even even though that person may be a pretty experienced fundraiser, what they're going to be able to produce is different, significantly different. It's almost making me think about, so I've just started training for a half marathon and it's making me think about that. You know, however many miles you can run right now is what you want to work on getting faster and you have to slowly build that up. Right. So am I hearing you right? Are you suggesting that sitting down with your manager and having regular conversations about the top prospects in your pool and the top gifts that you're working on is the best way to manage? Absolutely. And I think that's also often the one place today where there's serious prospect conversation, prospect strategy conversation, um, in addition to the fundraising management and doing prospect strategy in that one-on-one context, are opportunities to come together around a table where you have a group of fundraisers and a set of prospects and really do some brainstorming around ideas for approaching those people. And, and that was how I learned as a very junior person sitting at the table with more senior people. At that point, there was a spirit of, I'm going to bring this really big prospect. The vice president would bring a really big prospect or prospect family to the table. And he already had an idea in mind about what he thought should be done, but he opened it up for ideas and suggestions. And every once in a while, some crazy idea would come up and everybody would go, oh my God, that's brilliant. And it was this idea that as a group, people could often come to a better strategy together than than individually. But I do think we've promoted the idea of the sort of individual fundraiser with her portfolio and the expectation that she's going to know what the strategy should be in every single case. So she doesn't want to bring her best prospect to the table for conversation because that might look like she doesn't know what she's doing. Mm, we need to, we've got to change that culture and go back to a time of saying, no, no, you may know, but there could be two or three ideas that come through that brainstorming that are going to amend or change or tweak what you're thinking about doing and make it better. The younger people coming along are going to get mentored about, oh, that's how I should be thinking about my prospects. Oh, Mm. I could do that with so-and-so. This is a great idea. Yeah, we do that with our team with university development. And one of the things that's unusual for us is that half of our team is domestic and half of our team is international. And when we first started having them, there were some rumblings like, are the domestics so different from international? And as we started having the conversations, we realized, I mean, yes, it's different, but the international fundraisers had so much to share that we didn't know and vice versa. Exactly. No, and I think that's a super important point about the fundraisers together. Mm-hmm. So the international fundraisers are going to have some institutional knowledge about programming and content about what's going on at Columbia that maybe the domestic fundraisers haven't been exposed to yet. So mm-hmm. to your point, you can share that information. Well, maybe your prospect would be interested in this program that I know more about. Yes. So I think that cross kind of fertilization of ideas is also a really great thing. It's never a waste of time. I'm totally committed to the importance of doing that. I'm not sure how else we learn to do it and how we bring, how we get sort of the best strategy ideas in place. Yeah. Well, you talked about getting credit for more than one visit, which I think is hard to imagine. On a similar vein, how does share credit help build a stronger culture? And let me just explain for those listening. For us, when we talk about share credit, we're talking about 
working with another fundraiser on a gift and two, maybe three, but more often than not, two fundraisers get credit for bringing in one gift. For us, this has helped encourage collaboration and partnership. Is that common? I don't know if other places do it or not, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on the concept of share credit. I'm a huge proponent of shared credit. I mean, I would argue it's the only way to go. Mm -hmm. But I do know there are places that don't do it. My most personal example was several years ago when my son-in-law, Ryan McDonald, who's a senior uh, person in this field, he was uh, working in principal gifts at an organization, and he and the foundation director had been working on a big multi-million dollar grant for the organization. And they got it. And it was very exciting. And then Ryan came to me and he said, I don't believe this. Only one person can get credit for that gift. Oh my and he said, so here we collaborated beautifully. And now I'm in a totally competitive moment where I have to fight her to get the credit. This cannot be right. Okay, everybody who's listening, that cannot be right. What do you lose by sharing credit? Nothing. Is, you only gain. These are not auditable numbers yeah. in the institution's bottom line right? Mm -hmm. This is about creating a culture of collaboration and working together and teamwork rather than a set of Lone Ranger fundraisers. Mm -hmm. If Ryan had stayed there, he would have thought, well, God, next time I'm not even going to involve her because then I really might not get the credit, right? I mean, that's not the way to raise the most money. So what ended um, up happening? Um, I think he got the credit because as it turned out, he had put in more hours. Oh my gosh. But it was an unhappy and he was very unhappy about it. I, I can't quite figure out sort of rule-bound people who get kind of caught up in that sort of rigidity mm -hmm. um, that does not support clearly the kind of culture in organizations that most of us have wanted to create. Do you have any other thoughts on metrics and how we can think about them differently? I think having fundraising managers who are savvy enough to be able to help fundraisers come to their own set of goals and then I think having other aspects of performance, you and I have both worked in an environment where core values count toward the 100%, if you will, in terms of performance of fundraisers. Yeah, at Columbia, a part of our performance metric is if we've met our values. So that's sort of the opposite of only one person can get credit because the core value says you can be like the super top fundraiser of the year in terms of results and not get the best performance rating if your core values were low. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a powerful message to send to the whole organization. And having managed in that system, you have to have the courage and the discipline to occasionally tell those top fundraisers why they're not going to get the top rating even though they've had a really good year. If fundraiser, if some fundraisers have bad core values, so let's use an example, um, have a habit of yelling at the research team because they don't get their research as, in as timely a way or what exactly the way that they want it mm -hmm. rather than doing it in a respectful way treating everybody as a colleague. So that would be that would you would definitely get a ding on your core values if you were consistently, you know, disrespectful in that way. I think that behavior just reinforces sometimes the sense that fundraisers are the privileged ones in our organization. Hmm. They get all of the benefits, they get all of the hurrahs and pats on the back. Mm -hmm. When in fact we know it does take 
the entire organization to yeah. make us successful. I mean, this is seriously true. It I mean, is. you have to believe that it's really true that it takes everybody. And so I think having that those core values and saying to that fundraiser, sorry, if you if you start treating the researchers with respect, you're gonna get a bigger bonus or you're gonna get a bigger, you know, bigger pat on the back or whatever. I think that's hugely important to the rest of the organization to see that. I also think it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning of this push and pull between what can I get right now versus what we can earn and gain long term. Right. So it's the sustainability. Yeah. Um, where we're building relationships all around. <laughs> Both inside the organization and externally. Exactly. Exactly. It's been really helpful to hear about your, your thoughts on the top 20 and the ways we can think about working our portfolios. I would like to close with my signature question. What do you know for sure, Susan? It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately with my clients. We have a list of prospects. Already we have distanced ourselves from that list of people because we've given them a label. We have all kinds of words that we use to put them into different buckets. And that in our work, we sit around and we spend a lot of time speculating about what a particular prospect is going to think about this proposal or what she's really interested in or what he feels about our institution. And we forget that these are human beings who, with us, want a trusting and confidential relationship. If we don't know what they think about something, I now say every single time, go ask them. We spend all of our time making this distance between us rather than engaging in the kind of conversation where we don't speculate, we actually know how they feel about things. And that's the kind of relationship then that leads to the kind of giving and the sort of sustainability that you were referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the one thing I know for sure is that our prospects are people. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you've done for our field and for all the advancements that you've made for us. Thank you. No, it's fun to be here and it's a wonderful profession. It is. So I'm so glad you're in it. It is. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>